stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static, and I am uh, joined by by um, our colleague Russ Ryan to discuss an amicus brief that NCLA has filed in Alpine Securities versus Finra. Um, and uh, Russ, tell us a little about this case. What's happening in the case? Yeah, it, it arises from a Finra enforcement matter. Um, Who's Finra? Fin- oh, FINRA, that's the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. It's a private corporation that is a what's called a self-regulatory organization under the securities laws. Um, it's It basically regulates the brokerage industry, securities brokerage industry, the brokers and the securities firms that operate um, in the securities world, subject to SEC oversight. Okay, so is this kind of like if the ABA was overseen by, by I don't know, the Justice Department? It, is it that type of thing? Is everyone who's a securities person regulated by FINRA? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there are minor exceptions, but if um, the way the statutes are set up, you effectively have to become a member of FINRA and subject to its juris- jurisdictional oversight. So you're, you're right. It's a rough, you can roughly equate it to a bar association, if the bar association were overseen by some government, government agency. agency. So what's what's going on here? What's happened to uh, APTER and why are they, what, I, what's happened to Alpine Society and why are they suing FINRA? Al- Alpine Securities has been charged by FINRA uh, several times over the years. Most recently, um, they were subject to an enforcement action several years ago. Uh, while they were appealing that that sanction that they that was imposed within FINRA, there's an appellate process within FINRA. Okay, and then you go to the SEC, and then you can go theoretically to a federal court. While that appeal was pending before FINRA, FINRA commenced another enforcement action, saying you violated the order we issued the last time. So. Uh, I think Alpine just got to a point where they said, we got to stop this. You know, these people are out of control. Right. Um, So they went to federal court. Um, The case ended up in the the District of Columbia. Um, The district, uh, Alpine was looking for an injunction to stop the proceeding on various constitutional grounds. The district court denied the injunction, dismissed the case, actually dismissed the case, and then denied the injunction as moot. Uh, they went to the D.C. Circuit and the D.C. Circuit issued the injunction pending appeal with a nice um, concurring opinion by Judge Walker saying he thought there were serious constitutional questions involved. And what is the constitutional question? We put an amicus brief that you wrote uh, for NCLA's purposes. What's the issue here for us? Um, Well, uh, let me first state the issue we really didn't brief, which is that FINRA is in effect a state actor. Okay. Because it's essentially um, 
subject to government control. Statutes require you to be a member, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if it's a state actor, then it's subject to the Constitution. For example, you can argue that you need a jury trial. You can argue that FINRA's leadership needs to be properly appointed. They need to be removable by the president, things like that. Essentially, an alternative argument they've made is, well, even if FINRA's not a state actor, it's a private corporation, now you have what's called the private non-delegation doctrine in, uh, in play, which is basically a doctrine that says private actors cannot exercise government power unless they're closely supervised by some government agency. And FINRA, FINRA would claim and does claim that it's subject to close SEC oversight, and that satisfies the doctrine. We briefed that issue and said that might be so when FINRA issues rules because they do have to be pre-approved by the SEC for the most part. But when it comes to enforcement matters, there's no real-time supervision by the SEC at all. The only thing the SEC does is after the fact, it can serve as as an appellate uh, adjudicator. Okay. So uh, our position then is is that FINRA um, might might be a private actor uh, uh, or a public actor because of, of statutes. But as far as it's adjudicative, it's judicial. What is, am I correct in saying it's judicial role? I would call it prosecutorial. I would call it prosecutorial and disciplinary. Okay. And in that disciplinary role, there's no SEC oversight or SEC person on the spot making sure things are done in accordance with law. No, FINRA alone decides who to investigate, what what to do during the investigation, how burdensome to make the investigation, who should be charged, what violations should be charged, what the sanctions should be, whether a settlement should be accepted. All of that is done by FINRA without any real uh, involvement by the SEC. The only time the SEC actually gets involved is in a tiny fraction of cases that don't settle or default they go all the way through a FINRA hearing, then get appealed within FINRA, then get appealed to the SEC. That's like maybe 1% or 2% of all FINRA enforcement actions. And how many of those get to federal court? Very few. Yeah, very few. Uh, yeah, I, I, anecdotally, in my observation, it's you know a handful a year, maybe. Right. And um, so, uh, so NCLA's position is that here... FINRA has been cloaked with government power without any of the protections of the Constitution or of the laws. Yeah, I think we that's for sure. But what we're really arguing is let's let's assume that they're just a private actor. They're not a state actor. And so a lot of the Constitution does not apply to them. But they still when they're exercising quintessential executive powers of investigating prosecuting, disciplining uh, its the members of the organization, it needs to be meaningfully supervised along the way while those things are happening by the SEC. All right. And what are the parameters then of the private non-delegation doctrine? Um, it's, it's really a, not a well-developed doctrine. That's part of the problem. There's a handful of old... Um, Supreme Court cases and a few more recent ones in the circuit courts. But for the most part, the doctrine has developed in the context of private 
actors who who basically participate in making the rules. In most of those old cases, the private actor doesn't appear to ha- even have uh, enforcement authority. So that's that's one of the problems we're dealing with. And in the in the context of rulemaking, the courts have basically said it's okay for private individuals or private organizations to have to participate in the making of rules as long as they're subject to approval by the government, uh, modification by the government, and things like that. And there, there's a, a line of cases that say you can't really let a private organization make the rules if they're basically a, a competitor of the people that are going right. to be bound by the rules. And I, I think I, the, the way this has come up, as, as I recall, there was one, there was a dental board down in North Carolina that was making the rules up to make sure no one could get into the dental business. <laughs> I, I do recall that one. Um, and the other one, I guess, that just uh, got shot down, but then it got turned around real quick because Mitch McConnell wanted it was there was some sort of horse racing association, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, one you're forgetting about, though, oh. is there's a series of cases many years ago dealing with Amtrak. Um, ah, yes, yes. But the horse racing regulator you're right that's a, a a parallel type of case congress set up this regulator that would regulate basically the the horse racing industry on anti-doping and and, all, right. and gave it enforcement powers um originally the fifth circuit struck it down sixth i think but maybe no, it, was the fifth. The, oh, it was the fifth okay the fifth struck it down then as you said congress amended the statute to basically fix what the fifth the fifth circuit had said was a problem the sixth circuit then took another case and upheld the statute and then the fifth circuit case got remanded to the district court which upheld it so ah got it so there's a lot of percolating there as we say so now that case is back at the fifth circuit so you you could end up with a circuit split. Right. That... So this is a lot of private non-delegation litigation for, I mean, because it doesn't, it hasn't always happened so often. Yeah. I think part of the reason is Congress has just fallen in love with this, you know, let's create a, a private regulator and, you know, exempted from the constitution and exempted from meaningful oversight. And, you know, it can go off on its own way and do its, its thing. And, um, yeah, I think it's just something that's proliferating because Congress just likes this model of uber independent regulators. And I think that, um, well, I would say, at least in the horse racing, the Sixth Circuit has Kentucky, so they should probably be the first among equals there. But in this, in in um, Finrich type stuff, I would think the second or the D.C. Circuit is where to be. Um, and we're in the D.C. Circuit. And how... How do you think, how, how have they reacted in general to this sort of thing? Um, well, un- until this injunction pending appeal, I think most courts across the country, including in D.C., had largely brushed aside any constitutional arguments against FINRA, basically saying it's not a state actor um, and this is fine. Um, that's why this was surprising that uh, that we got an injunction pending appeal. So there's some hope that the court is going to take this seriously. All right. Well, um, 
I, I hope, obviously, we hope it does. We hope our amicus brief uh, has helped it along, and I'm, sh- I'm sure it has. And we will be talking to you again when the order comes out. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. And we are now joined by our litigation counsel colleague at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Shang Lee. Shang, welcome back to Administrative Static. Thanks, Mark and John. So the reason we have uh, Shang with us is because he uh, is the author of an amicus brief that NCLA filed this past week in a case, an important case, I think, uh, in the Fifth Circuit, uh, urging um, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, on Bonk uh, to vacate the NLRB's decision to punish Tesla uh, in, in what we think is a clear in clear defiance of the First Amendment. And so the case is is Tesla Inc. the National Labor Relations Board. And before I before I ask Shang to to tell us about the arguments in NCLA's brief, I just wanted to to give a little bit of background, which is that. On May 20th of 2018, so we're talking more than five years ago now, Musk was asked by an activist on Twitter, so this is way before Musk owned Twitter, uh, about unionization at Tesla plants. And Musk tweeted the following words, nothing stops Tesla team at our car plant from voting union, could do so tomorrow if they wanted, but why pay union dues and give up stock options for nothing. So that tweet is what has led to this entire federal case from the National Labor Relations Board. And it has to be said, Shang, so far, Tesla hasn't fared very well in this litigation, have they? No, that's right. They lost before the board, uh, and they petitioned for review to the Fifth Circuit and and lost there. Uh, But the Fifth Circuit has decided to rehear the case on Bonk, and that's that's a you know somewhat of a good sign for Tesla. Absolutely, and so so the Fifth Circuit will rehear this uh, and tell us what is the contention that Tesla makes here. They're they're claiming essentially that there's First Amendment protection for a tweet like this. That's right, and and because the uh, uh, the National Labor Relations Act uh, punishes says pro- uh, prohibits employers from threatening employees for engaging in unionized activity. Uh, but the courts have said uh, that has to be a true threat. And in the evaluation of employer speech to determine whether it's a threat has to really consider all the context. Uh, and there's really context here uh, that the courts and the NLRB have ignored. That is that you can't Let's just take get to a that context. statement. Can we get to that context in just a minute? Because you said something sure. very important that I want to dwell on for just a moment, which is that they have to take into account all of the context that reminds me of a case from the Third Circuit that NCLA won not that not that long ago. That's right. And it's very similar to this case. So there, uh, what happened was Vox Media employees unionized and they walked out in a, in a you know union kind of strike. 
And uh, Vox is kind of a left-leaning digital media company, a right-leaning digital media company called Federalist uh, saw this. And the executive, uh, an executive at Federalist uh, tweeted at his employees as a joke, of course. Uh, you know, you guys try to account. do that. Tweeted from his personal you account, guys, not, from the, not from the corporate from, account. Exactly. From, from his personal account, you guys try this, and I'll send you back to the salt mines. Uh, no, no, back to the salt mines was the tweet. And NRRB went after uh, Federalist for that tweet, alleging, hey, that tweet is uh, a true threat to send employees back to the salt mines. These are, these are writers and journalists, you know. Um, and there, uh, NCLA represented Federalist uh, and got the Third Circuit to vacate the NRRB uh, decision against Federalist. And there, the Third Circuit says, look, you've got to take the back to the salt mines tweet uh, in context. And the context clearly shows that, uh, that it's a joke. It's, a, it's satirical. It's directed at this box walkout. Uh, and, and, you know, frankly, none of these employees have ever been to the salt mine, so how could they be sent back? And so, uh, so it, it, you know, taking all of that into context, and, and, and uh, uh, the Third Circuit also says the mode of communication was important, that the fact that this happened on Twitter through a personal account and, and sent to something, you know, thousands or millions of people could see, uh, it would be really strange, the Third Circuit said, if, that, if you're trying to threaten your employees by making a public declaration like this. Yeah, you might want to threaten your employees behind closed doors. That's how I like to do it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. uh, that's how you do it, Mark. Yeah, that's right. Now the NLRB is going to come after me. Uh, so, so, the, so the Third Circuit decided you have to look at the full context. And, uh, and now this case is in front of the, the Fifth Circuit. And that's one of the arguments that Tesla is making that, hey, the NLRB didn't look at the full context here. And you were getting ready to tell us, Shang, what some of the context was here around uh, Elon Musk's tweet. Yeah, that's right. And I also want to mention that the panel, the, the original panel decision that got vacated in the Fifth Circuit didn't even mention our Federalist case, even though it was directly on point. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why the, the en banc Fifth Circuit is, uh, has decided to rehear this case, is to, so that they can create consistency among the circuits. And it wasn't because they didn't know about the case. I mean, we, we filed an oh, amicus yeah. brief <laughs> to tell them all about it. Telling them about it. <laughs> And, and, and also, we meant to ignore you. <laughs> yeah, the NRRB decision against Tesla cited as its sole legal authority the case that it decided against Federalist, which was vacated by the Third Circuit. So it, it was impossible for that panel not to know about the Federalist case. Mm -hmm. uh, but moving on to sort of the uh, the context here, um, so Musk said, uh, remember that you know why would you trade away your stock options for unions? Uh, but he's always he's that, that's consistent with everything he's saying. Uh, Tesla, he's he's been telling employees for years that Tesla is unique among automakers um, in giving stock options to production employees, and he's also been telling employees that in no auto manufacturing company that has the United Auto Worker Union in it uh, do employees have stock options, and that's because the union the union doesn't want the employees to stock options because uh, it, it muddles the, you know, the distinction between owner and employee. Um, and he, he's, he made that statement before he tweeted, that he tweeted, you know, why would you trade away your stock options? And when someone on Twitter took that out of context and asked him on Twitter, hey, are you threatening your employees with loss of stock options? He clarified and said, no, I'm not. It's the union that's taking away the employee stock options. So through right. this, there's just no room for misunderstanding. Uh, right. And, and by the way, so, so his point is, if Tesla unionizes, 
then the unions will come in. And as part of the negotiation that they would structure between the employees and the company, they would insist that stock options no longer be given to the employees, that they would insist on getting salary or something else in lieu of stock options. That's right. And, uh, and courts have said, you know, employers speaking about the probable economic impact of immunization is 100% protected by the, by the First Amendment. They just can't make direct threats to you uh, against, against their employees. By the way, at the time, Tesla has over 100,000 employees now. At the time, it had about 50,000 employees. And it's notable that NRB, in its quest to uh, uh, get Tesla on this, could not find a single employee who would testify, I found Musk's tweet to be threatening. Uh, so it seems like either either employees don't know what a threat is, or NRLB is being hypersensitive about this sort of thing. Or they're not on Twitter, which might which might be a problem. Or, yeah, or, <laughs> yeah, or or they're or more more likely they're they're not. You know, it's part of the strike, and we're not going on Twitter either. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true too. Um, the uh, and what's fascinating about it is that NRLB ordered uh, Tesla to direct Musk to delete his tweet. Uh, which is funny because at the time Musk didn't own Twitter, but now he does. So he's asking the, uh, they're asking the, uh, the court to force the owner of Twitter to delete his tweet. From his personal account. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. funny. I mean, it would be funny if it weren't such an abuse of federal power. But the, the other thing that, that you get into in the amicus brief, uh, is Shang, is you, you say that the board's decision was legally flawed because it failed to consider Musk's state of mind. Can you speak more to yeah. that issue? Yeah, of course. And, and on this point, at the time, the courts, uh, including this one, hadn't said, uh, defined what a true threat really was uh, under, you know, under the First Amendment. Uh, but just last term, the court in a case called Counterman uh, v. Colorado held that in order for the government to punish somebody for making a true threat, what you have to do is uh, find proof that the, the speaker uh, knew, should have known, or was in reckless disregard of the fact that his speech uh, would be felt, would be, you know, felt to be threatened by, by someone listening to it. Um, and, 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 and otherwise, uh, you know, Musk was just answering a question on Twitter. If that was threatening, he certainly didn't intend it to be threatening. He said a day later, hey, I didn't intend that to be a threat and clarified his comment. Uh, but the NRB has consistently insisted that, uh, uh, for years, that a speaker's motive, that an employer's motive, is not relevant. Uh, well, the Supreme Court just said not so. It, it's not just relevant, it's dispositive, that if you don't find evidence that Musk uh, consciously disregarded the potential of his tweet being, you know, taken out of context and felt threatening, if you he, 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 he don't have that mens rea, uh, you can't punish him for speaking. And then the final issue in the in the brief is one we've talked about a lot on this show, which is the deference. And but there are some unique reasons why the court should not defer to NLRB's decision. And one of them that uh, you know, there's all the it's all the normal reasons that we don't like deference on this show. And I won't I won't repeat them them here because we only have about a minute and fifteen seconds left. But one of the things that you point out, Shang, is that this is an adjudication, and there may be reasons not to have Chevron deference in the adjudication context. Can you explain that? Well, yes, because adjudications, if you have Chevron deference for a regulation, a regulation is, is uh, kind of forward-looking. So maybe some deference there is not, you know, it, it, we think it's bad, but it's bad for the normal reasons. Uh, but for an adjudication, 
the agency is going after somebody and that person has no notice that of what the agency's interpretation is going to be and uh, has no way to conform uh, that person, has no way to conform his conduct to, to fit the Man. agency's sort of novel interpretation. And then that interpretation is just a, a surprise against the, uh, against the accused. And that, that inflicts, you know, an even graver due process uh, injury than, than, you know, than, than deference normally does. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And so for all of these reasons, the, the, the violation of the, the first amendment that we already saw in the third circuit case, we see here uh, the, the fact that the, the, the decision failed to consider Musk's state of mind and the fact that they're deferring to NLRB's decision. These are all reasons that the en banc fifth circuit might, uh, might reverse here. So thank you, Shang, for enlightening us. Thank you.